From WOUB News, this is The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm April Leslie. And I'm Ben Polstowait. Today in the show, we look back at how student activists at Ohio University are reclaiming public space. It's Autism Awareness Month, and we'll explore how groups in Athens are gearing up to raise awareness. As spring weather rolls into southeast Ohio, we trace the history of the Hawking River and flooding in Athens. But first, we dive into the complex relationship between college athletics and academics at Ohio University. Their focus and emphasis is school first, is to, for their academics to always come first. Um, at the same time, they happen to be a very talented individual in the area of athletics. Those stories and more are coming up on the outlet. Stay with us. Across the country, the relationship between college athletics and academics is a hot-button issue. Athletics are a big draw for donors, who often end up subsidizing expensive academic programs. The problem comes when schools begin relying on those funds. The outlet's Asha Brogan set out to explore that relationship here at Ohio University. Ellen Isaac sits at a desk studying for a math final. She is also a student athlete on the cross-country and track teams at OU and has been balancing jobs as an athlete and student for the last six years. Isaac recognizes the difficulty of balancing both, but she also says that the benefits of being a student athlete far outweigh the hardships. The time restriction is kind of unfortunate sometimes, but as far as getting help and like accommodations being made and stuff, it's like it honestly is easier to be an athlete, I think. Jim Schaus is the athletic director for Ohio University, and one of his many jobs is overseeing the student athlete welfare. Schaus grew up with his own father as an athletic director and played sports most of his life, but feels that school should come first. First and foremost, they're a student first, and that's how they come to the university. That's how we recruit them to come. Their focus and emphasis is school first, is to, for their academics to always come first. Um, at the same time, they happen to be a very talented individual in the area of athletics. While most students at college are balancing numerous activities, from practice to travel, student athletes do have to work very hard to stay caught up. Abigail Dreyer is an Ohio University student who doesn't participate in athletics, but feels that student athletes have to put in extra effort to balance school and their sports. Um, I know a lot of my friends, like, they have to keep a certain grade point average in order to continue playing their sport or else they get benched. Um, so I think that they still have to work really hard. Um, and I think with like all the practice and stuff, they have less time, so they have to spend a lot of time um, studying in their free time versus just like hanging out and like doing random stuff. To help students maintain this balance, Schaus explains the ways the athletic department provides them with assistance. All of our student athletes, they come here, they attend study hall right off the bat. So they have to have a certain number of hours, like eight hours a week, whatever. They'll, that'll, we'll adjust that in semesters that follow based on their academic performance. In addition, the NCAA guidelines lays out certain rules that the school closely follows for only letting students practice a certain number of hours per day. Although including personal training, this can be up to 40 hours a week, the time of a full-time job, and this is on top of school. This doesn't mean that the balance still isn't hard for some students, but overall, Aaron Rodgers, Ohio University's women's soccer coach, feels that Ohio University has a good system that stresses academics. We've, we've been very fortunate, and they've earned great GPAs. I mean, our team GPA last semester was a, com a cumulative 3.58, I think. So, I mean, you know, these are high-driving individuals um, academically. And, uh, and so I think it's a pretty good balance. I mean, um, we haven't run into any issues with it. In addition to grades, both coaches and student-athletes 
feel that being in athletics has many other benefits. From her personal life, Isaac feels that while the balance is hard, having a tight schedule has helped to have better study habits and stay focused in school. I feel like I'm living such a, like, a healthier lifestyle than the normal college student, not even just because I'm running, but also because I get the sleep that I need to get and I eat the things I need to eat instead of, and you know, like going, like I don't go out like a normal student would go out probably. In Roger's opinion, the addition of athletics in students' lives can help them succeed in many other ways. First and foremost, I mean, it definitely helps prepare them for their life after college. Um, from a discipline standpoint, from a time management standpoint, um, from uh, a, uh, a stress management standpoint, um, and so all those things. I mean, obviously, ultimately, you're in college to prepare yourself for your professional life afterwards. And so I think that uh, academics and athletics intertwine. As a student athlete in college and now a coach, Rogers thinks athletics has helped his own life as well to accomplish goals that he might not have otherwise reached for. Isaac has similar thoughts. She feels like participating in athletics has taught her patience and how to handle various situations, which is a great skill to have later on. Even if you're not the organized type of student, you learn to be the organized kind of student if you're on a team. For the outlet, this is Asha Brogan. April is Autism Awareness Month, and groups in Athens and elsewhere have spent the month fundraising and spreading the word. The outlet's Michaela Marshall explains how Ohio University is doing its part to contribute and what research they're supporting. You might not realize it, but these are sounds at Ohio University that help fund autism research. April is Autism Awareness Month, and currently one in 68 children are born with autism. Groups on campus, such as Autism Speaks You and Alpha Z Delta Sorority, are raising money for an organization called Autism Speaks. But what many people do not know is that there is so much more to Autism Speaks than fundraising. The organization also helps to provide resources to people affected by autism, whether it is a child, parent, or relative. Penn, a board-certified behavioral analyst for Faith, Hope, and Love in all autism services, who is affiliated with Autism Speaks, mainly as a network connection. Autism is a disease that includes language, social, and behavioral deficits. Penn explained further. So you'll see the deficits in all three of those areas, but you'll see them in different degrees for every single child. And not all, every child has deficits in all three areas. And that's how you get the spectrum, the range. So the severity goes based on how many of those deficits in those areas do they have and how severe are the deficits. So that's how you'll go from your mild to moderate to severe, depending on those three areas. But what exactly does Penn do as a board-certified behavioral analyst for Faith, Hope, and Love in all autism services? On a daily basis, I can be working with a child one-on-one -on -one doing direct care therapy, or I could be working with my therapist and helping them how to work with the children, or I could be working with the parents, training them how to help their children learn, help their children with the various behaviors, or I could be in my office writing programs for the children, designing different be what we call behavior protocols for them. So my role varies every single day. She devotes her life to helping children with autism. Penn utilizes a specific therapy known as Applied Behavioral Analysis, or ABA. ABA includes one-on-one -on -one training, group or social skills training, 
parent trainings, and workshops. It is the only research-proven therapy that works with children with autism, so it's very much research-based. We take data on everything that we do. Penn says that is just one of the ways that she helps parents with autistic children. None of us were born knowing how to raise typical children, let alone a child with special needs. And so we teach the parents the concepts of reinforcement and how you can reinforce behaviors, how you can extinguish behaviors. It's nobody's fault that these behaviors would emerge in the children, but once we see the behaviors emerging, what are our, re what are our reactions that's going to help reinforce them or extinguish them? For families struggling to support an autistic child, building connections to other families facing the same challenges is necessary. But Penn says it isn't so easy. And what you find is that the families are so consumed with taking care of that child every day and very limited amount of people in that, in that child's life know how to work with that child, know how to help that child through his struggles so that the caregivers don't have time to go out and get the support that they need. And so unless you have a huge support system of the grandmothers, the grandparents, the aunts, and the uncles, which unfortunately is rare these days to have that community involvement, the parents are so overwhelmed just trying to live day to day that they don't have that time. And if they have the time, the energy to go ahead and do that. Penn feels strongly that what she does makes an impact. But there is still so much more to do in order for children living with autism to become functioning members of society. I think the most important thing that needs to happen is that the funding for these children needs to be provided. It needs to be seen. This is a medical condition. It's a neurological disorder of their brain. And we need to provide them the assistance they need at a young age. The research has shown that, yes, it is a very expensive therapy, but the research has shown if you do that when they're younger and put the money in there when they're younger, over the course of the lifetime, it is significantly less money that is being put towards the children. Something that Cheryl Penn, Alpha Z Delta Sorority, and Autism Speaks You can all agree on is that what they do matters, and each service and every donation makes a difference. For WOUB News, I'm Michaela Marshall. It's been a big year for student activists at Ohio University. From the hands-up, don't-shoot walkout to last month's bat rally, student protesters have been increasingly mobilized all over campus. Vaisal Saleh looked into how these protesters and others are changing how public spaces are used in the city. I came to Athens two years ago. For me, getting used to places like Court Street on the weekends took some time. Over two years, the use of public spaces by students has been changed. Jessica Inslee a student at Ohio University and a columnist for the Post in Intersectional Feminism, explains this shift. I mean, last year there were less protests than there were this year. I'm talking about the new black, their use of public space and putting um, gravestones on College Green was genius. And especially for a movement where no one wants to seem racist. And so the police don't really mess with you. Um, administrators don't really mess with you. And they, they left that um, grave site up for quite a few days, I believe. It was really, it's a smart way of using space. And then going sort of into the classrooms as well with chalking and everything like that. And, and FEM also um, were good at this. Whenever there was an assault on campus, we would go out and chalk on those spaces. So that was a really neat use of public space. And I was actually just chalking for um, uh, National Anti-Street uh, Harassment Week um, and was harassed while chalking. Students have different definitions and uses of public space. Public space to me is any place 
you were allowed without having to be restricted access so wherever you want to go and you're free to go there and you're not breaking any rules of trespassing i consider that public space and you have the right to be there whenever you want unless otherwise told not to be there so my idea of a public space is my own um space that cannot be invaded by someone else and my own bubble. Um, when I think of public space, I think of something that should be accessible and open to all people. However, I think that is subjective because I don't think that that is necessarily the case. When I hear the word public space, I think that it is more like a, an illusion because there is no such thing as public space because uh, when you try to define public space and put it into context, uh, you come up with barriers and like who is, who's supposed to use that space. So eventually uh, uh, it becomes like a controlled space, which does not make it public. Walking through public spaces in Athens, I'm motivated to see what is unique about it. Dr. Riza Whitson from the Department of Geography and the Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies sees public space in Athens, a unique one compared to other spaces in Ohio. So it's unique maybe in comparison to public spaces in other neighboring towns in the region, right? Or if we think about small town America, our public spaces might be unique in um, in the way that they're used. I think that um, this, however, I think it's fairly common for college campuses, right, that public spaces are going to be used in a particular way that you might not find in, like, suburban America or in other small towns where there isn't so much activity. We have probably more um, use of public space in terms of people um, using public space to to get their voices heard or to represent particular um, viewpoints from particular groups. Um, not necessarily demonstrations, but ways that people will like change the space or put things up in the space or will walk through the space in order to make their voices heard. I think that happens more here than probably in Nelsonville. From posters around the campus, chalking on sidewalks, tabling outside Baker Center, and recent student demonstrations, Jessica Ensley says the recent issues in campus and in the country helped to turn public spaces in campus into a space for protest. With the new black especially, and before they were even an organization protesting the deaths of Mike Brown and Eric Garner, um, the use of public space was at the moment seemingly chaotic, but then when I'm looking back, it was really a genius way. You know, you start off at one space and then you take to the streets um, and you really sort of take over that space and then go to another space like when we um, had the die-in at Cutler Hall. Um, So that's a really ingenious way of using space. And then especially with the bat rally, organizing it in such a way so that it was in front of the house, made for really great pictures, um, made um, more people come out because it was in a space where there's a lot of traffic and you couldn't really get through um, as opposed to if we were having a protest at um, the memorial um, on College Green where people can walk by and they don't necessarily have to stop. Lieutenant Tim Ryan from the Ohio University Police Department says that students need to plan with the police before demonstrating. I think that most people understand uh, where they can be and where they can't. I think that sometimes they make a conscious choice to do the civil disobedience thing. I think they know that they shouldn't be blocking traffic, but they're making a choice. I think the, the most recent um, you know, quote-unquote bat rally, um, that, that group was actually very, um, 
conscientious and thinking ahead and did a great job of meeting with us ahead of time so that they could have the, the best impact they, that they could without sort of detracting with arrests and all the negative publicity that would come with that. I thought they did a great job with that. So some groups um, do plan ahead and, and, uh, and sort of make sure that they're doing everything right. Public spaces are also gendered spaces. Dr. Whitson and Jessica Ensley perceive public spaces in Athens as male-dominated spaces. Dr. Whitson emphasizes the importance of using public space among students. So I think that, that students are aware of, of the power of public space. And um, I think that the bat rally, that's a good example of um, people realizing that if they actually like come out into public space, that there's power in the presence. Um, power in like having different people coming into the same place. Jessica Ensley supports this. She sees the reason particular public spaces become hostile environment by certain groups is because public spaces are being used more by other marginalized groups to be represented and to get their voices heard. I think the fact that people um, are getting more aggressive um, shows that you know, it's working. And this public space that was once deemed only for like hyper-masculine white men is now being taken over by these other marginalized groups and they're really pushing back. Public space should be something that is open for everyone to feel comfortable and welcome, but the way our society works now, it is not. And that needs to be changed. For WOUB News, this is Faisal Saleh. Parts of the Hawking River flooded earlier this month. WOUB's Kelly Wanamaker informs us on the history of flooding in Athens and rerouting the Hawking River in 1969. After a rainy Thursday in April, parts of the bike path were submerged in several feet of water for days after. An OU student, Asha Brogan, drove her bike on the flooded portion of the towpath on her way to a job interview. So I was trying to bike to the community center, and there's a place where the bike path dips down, and the river had flowed over it, and so I grabbed a stick and I tested it out, and it seemed to be only a couple inches deep. And I started biking through, and suddenly my bike plunged down. I had to try to not let my bike get swept away in the river, and, and I was soaking wet up to my waist. While Asha struggled to get to her interview, two more students, Bennett and Sanbe, relaxed by the flooded riverbank. It looks really cool when the water is high like this. Well, yeah, I've never really heard of flooding being a problem on campus. But OU has suffered from flooding since its founding. Ever notice how the older homes in Athens are all built on hills on top of hills? This wasn't done for a pretty view. Athens is in fact built on a floodplain. So the higher ground, the better. After Thursday's rainstorm, Brian Christie, who works at Alden Library, noticed a lot of flood damage upstream of OU. There was water on the road. A lot of the houses around Chansey, I could see that most of their lawns were submerged. And building for children's and family services and a dog shelter, their whole parking lot was covered in water. So all the, all the cars had to park basically close to the road. because it was, it was like as if a lake was there, brown lake. Why is the university built in the middle of a floodplain? It all goes all the way back to 1787 with the Northwest Ordinance. Ohio Territory was all wildland, and Congress decided that if the Ohio Territory became a state, the pioneers who settled here should have some education. So they decided to found a public university, Ohio University. 
Former Revolutionary War soldiers and settlers from Marietta traveled upstream the Hawking River and decided on the site of Athens. These rough-and-tough pioneers did not realize that the site of their public university was going to experience some serious flooding. The problem with Athens is a problem with the Hawking River. It meanders, and meandering rivers create dangerous flood conditions. Mike Spores with the Army Corps of Engineers works on rivers like the Hawking. I get to see lots and lots of streams like this, and, and of course, obviously, the Hawking can recede more rapidly than the bank soils can drain. In 1968, the Hawking caused its biggest flood yet. Pictures show OU students climbing into small boats to attend class on a flooded campus. The university called in the Army Corps of Engineers to come and straighten the river out. The engineers rerouted the Hawking River for $11 million and finished the rerouting in 1971. Engineer Mike Spores was there and worked on the river's redesign. Remember, the whole purpose here is to, one, armor the bank so that the channel doesn't evolve, in other words, change in a flood event and pass down through the campus. This wall and armoring that Mike Spores talks about includes the wide grass embankments on the side of the river. The Army Corps' work leaves a three-foot freeboard. This means that in the case of a 100-year event, a large flood only seen roughly one in 100 years, the height of the embankment that contains the river has three feet of clearance above the predicted height. You know, your, your channel is in dynamic near equilibrium now, which means it's, it's uh, neither deepening nor widening nor meandering. Uh, to have the best uh, fit, energy fit for what we call effective or dominant flows. South Green and West Green dorms, along with Baker Center, were all built in spots uninhabitable before the rerouting project. Next time you're in Baker Center, just take a second to appreciate that the second floor would have been at stream level. Since the project, the rerouting has saved OU an estimated $48 million by averting flood damage. But as seen with the bike path, the battle with flooding is not over. The Army Corps of Engineers has done 20 visits to check up on the Hawking since they completed the project. Their last checkup was in 1991, leaving Athens County to maintain the structure of the river to protect against future flooding. For WOUB News, I'm Kelly Wanamaker. That's it for our broadcast today. Thanks for joining us. The outlet is produced and edited each week by myself and April. Our senior producer is Tony Gorman. Our music was composed and performed by Ryan Gabus. The outlet is a production of WOUB Public Media and Ohio University. You can catch our stories online at woub.org. It's been a fun ride producing the outlet over the past few months. We'll be back in the summer telling stories about Ohio University and the Athens community. Thanks for listening.